Good morning, church family. It's Suze here. I miss uh, seeing you all every weekend. It's been a long time since we've all been together in the building, but it's pretty cool that as Christians, we actually have the rest of eternity to hang out. So um, that's a real blessing. Uh, but yeah, definitely looking forward to seeing you all in person soon. This morning, we've got two short readings. The first one is from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 to 3. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. The second reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be opening up God's word with you today. And not just inside church, but for me, the first time in your home too. And today we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Samuel 18 to 20, but we're going to be spending our most of the time in chapter 18, uh, as the passage is so big and most of the ideas over the three chapters are found in 18. Now I'm just going to pray and then I'll start. Father in heaven, I just thank you that we can open up your word. I ask you to come now and, and speak to us. Uh, show us the truths you want us to learn from this passage. Please help us to get excited about Jesus and all that he has done for us. And I just ask uh, that you would help us to grow our affections for Jesus today as we learn about his great ancestor, David. Amen. Well, it was 5 a.m. in the morning when a man named Bill Iote heard someone screaming outside his house. He was 69 years old. He lived in Canada and the year was 2013. In between the screams, he heard the words, help, it's a bear. He got out of bed. He opened the front door and there before him was a large polar bear with a woman in its mouth. He stopped for a moment not sure what to do. He had no weapon, but he thought, if I don't do anything, this woman, she's going to die. Then he saw his shovel sitting next to his door. He picked it up, ran with his shovel and started hitting the bear. The bear, it let go of the woman. She ran inside the house to safety. Bill had saved her. But before he could get back inside the house, the bear grabbed a hold of him. It pinned him to the ground and it started to maul him. By this time, a number of neighbours heard the commotion outside. They all ran onto the street. One fired a gun a number of times at the bear. It still didn't let go. Another neighbour jumped into their car, honking the horn and crashed into the bear. Finally, it let go of Bill. Both Bill and the woman whose name was Aaron survived. Bill was taken straight to hospital and he became a hero in the town. Now, the town loved Bill for what he had done. 
They all rallied together. They paid all his medical fees. They had affections for this great hero. Erin loved Bill. When she was interviewed about what had happened, she said, thank you will never be enough. He gave me my life. It's the most remarkable thing a person can do. Risk his life for another human being. Aaron loved Bill for what he had done. He had saved her. And it wasn't just Aaron and Bill uh, who loved Bill for what he's done, but all of Canada. Bill was awarded the Star of Courage, an award for bravery in the Canadian system of honours. Bill had risked his life. He was a hero. He was loved by Aaron, the town and all of Canada. You see, the love Aaron now had for him, towards him, there was gratefulness flowing out of her, affections for what Bill had done. Now, as we come to our passage in 1 Samuel today, we also see a hero who everyone loved except one. Because of his act of bravery and how he had saved so many people. Now, if you remember last week, David had defeated Goliath. David, who we're told was just a youth. He was up against a nine foot tall, experienced warrior. And he defeated Goliath with even less than a shovel, just a sling and some pebbles. Now, the Philistines... At this time, they were the single greatest threat to the people of Israel. For some 40 days, the Israelite army had been shaking in fear. And when everyone else had been too scared to go and fight Goliath, David had put up his hand for the battle. If David hadn't won, it could have been total extermination For God's people, it may have meant slavery, could have meant their women all being taken away. Whatever the result, it would have been terrible. And David, he had saved everyone. David was their hero. This had just happened in chapter 17. And this now brings us to our passage It's the backdrop for what we find in chapter 18. If your Bible is on your lap, please open up with me to verse 1 of chapter 18. Please read along with me. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. We see Jonathan loved David. We're told just after David finished talking with Saul, just after David had defeated Goliath, saved Israel, Jonathan had affections for this saviour, David. And it goes on. Please read with me verse 3 to 4. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing And gave it to David, along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. 
Now, this response to David is quite remarkable. We see here Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel at the time, who you might have thought would see David as a rival. You see, earlier in 1 Samuel, we saw that Jonathan had been the hero. Jonathan had been the one who had saved God's people in battle. But now he's David. He's done something greater than Jonathan ever had done in his defeat of Goliath. But rather than be jealous, Jonathan humbles himself. He makes a covenant with David on his own initiative. He gives David his royal clothes, his royal weapons. While we're not told exactly what Jonathan was thinking, it would seem he's acknowledging God was with David. And by giving him his royal robe and royal weapons, it seems he's symbolically transferring his royal rights to David, saying, I acknowledge you are the one that God has chosen. Not being jealous, not seeing him as a rival, but humbling himself in light of the salvation that David has brought to Israel, responding with love and affection to David. Now, please come down with me to verse six. Please read along. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. The women in the towns also loved David. They're, we see this by their actions. They were filled with joy at the salvation they had just received. And their affections, they flowed out for David in song. Saul has slain his thousands. David his tens of thousands. Now come down with me, please, to verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them on their campaigns. As David continued to fight against God's enemies, continuing to secure the freedom of Israel, we're told the whole nation loved him. The nation's affections were all growing for David because of the salvation he was bringing them, the freedom he was bringing them. Now come down with me to verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. We see David was a national hero. He was the saviour who'd captured hearts and minds of the nation. We're told they loved him. They had affection for him. And this is such a right response in light of all he'd done. He'd given them so much, done so much for them by his bravery. The right response for his sacrifice was to love him. Now, 14 generations later, another hero would come who would be descended in the line of David. Another man would come who would set God's people free 
and save them. But this hero, this saviour, he'd fight a much greater battle than Goliath. This saviour was so great, he would defeat even death itself. This hero, he had power and strength, not just to save people in the location that he was living in, but his power was so great, he'd save the entire world. And the victory he won was not just for that generation, but his victory would be for all eternity. This hero, he didn't just risk his life for others, but this hero would even willingly sacrifice, lay down his own life for others. And even more than that, this man was willing to die, not just for those who were good, but for anyone who would put their trust in him. This man, this hero who was to come, was awesome in every sense of the word. And while he was mighty and powerful, he still cared for the weak and for the vulnerable. The one who would come in the line of David would also be God's anointed king, like David was and how Saul had been. But he would be so great, he would come to be known as the anointed one, an exclusive term that would be used just for him. And the anointed one in Hebrew language is the Messiah. The Messiah in Greek is Christ. Jesus Christ is our hero, our saviour who came in the line of David. He offers us salvation, freeing us from sin and death for anyone who believes in him. And a right way to respond to our hero, our saviour who has rescued us in the most wonderful way is also to love him. So I want to ask you this morning, do you love Jesus? Do you have affections toward our great hero and savior, Jesus? Because of all he has done for us, do you love him? I know for myself, when I often think of following Jesus, uh, and think about Jesus, I think about following him, trusting him, obeying him. But for some reason, for myself, I don't often think a lot about loving Jesus or the affections that I have toward him. And while all of these responses are important uh, to trust, obey, follow, one of the major themes in this passage today is love for God's anointed. So today I want to draw our attention to loving God's anointed one, Jesus. Peter wrote to the suffering believers in 1 Peter 1.18, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And so I want to ask that question today. Do you love Jesus? Now the question, it's an important question. Because it highlights Christianity, it's not just about 
traditions or words or actions alone, but it has at the center of it the person of Jesus and a personal relationship with him. It requires a response to Jesus for what he has done for us. And what does loving Jesus look like? What does it mean to love Jesus? Well, at a starting point, it is a response to Jesus. Uh, Like trusting, following, obeying are all responses to Jesus. They're all very closely related. They're all the ways the Bible describes our responses to Jesus. But each of these different terms, they all have a slightly different nuance to them. So loving Jesus, well, it is far more than an emotion that you fall into or or fall out of. The nuance of loving Jesus very much has, uh, is about having an adoration for Jesus, delighting in Jesus, affections for Jesus because of what he has done for us. And for myself, this is a challenge for me. Sometimes I feel those affections for Jesus. I feel adoration and delight, but sometimes I don't. And if it's not there, then I need to ask myself, well, why not? Are my eyes fixed on Jesus or have I started to drift? A right response to Jesus is to love him. Do I need to remind myself And focus on what he's done for me. How great of a hero he is. Sometimes I do need to remind myself of these things. Is that something that you need to remind yourself of too? Do you love Jesus? Now we've seen that pretty much all of Israel and Judea, they love David because of what he has done for them. They love him because of how he saved them. But there's one person who wasn't quite feeling the love. Uh, Please read with me. Verse 8. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me... With only thousands, what more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. We see here this jealousy creeping up inside of Saul. Saul is not happy. And jealousy, unfortunately, it's not a foreign thing to my own home. Now, I have a beautiful family. I love my kids. But you see, my boys, they're four and five years old, only one year apart. And if someone manages to build a bigger tower out of Lego than the other one, someone's not happy. If someone uh, manages to do a trick on their bike that the other one can't do, jealousy creeps in. Someone's not happy. And may it never happen. But if someone perceives they got a smaller scoop of ice cream than someone else, jealousy, they are not happy. Rather than being happy for the good thing they have, 
They are not happy that someone else has something better. And so we see here in Saul, his kingdom has just been saved. But David has received more credit than him. And so Saul is not happy. It's the complete opposite to Jonathan's response. We see Saul, one who has hardened his heart towards God's anointed. While Jonathan humbled himself and loved David, Saul becomes proud and hates David. He cares about himself and his own glory more than God and God's glory. David just saved the kingdom. All he could think about was he didn't get the credit. Now I want to touch on verse 10 to 12. These can be some hard verses to understand. Please read with me verse 10 to 12. See what happens next. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So what is happening here? Some of these verses, they're easy to understand. And some of these verses, they're a bit harder to understand. So I'll start off with what's easy and then try and deal with what's harder. We saw in chapter 16, uh, if you had read through the passage last week, we're told that this same thing happens. An evil spirit comes on Saul and torments him. Now, what's clear, what's easy to understand, this, this evil or harmful spirit, it's God's judgment on Saul. Saul is receiving judgment. Now, that part is the part that's easy to understand. Trying to understand the rest. First, it's important to note, the harmful spirit didn't make Saul bad. He was already bad. He already had a hard heart. He hadn't listened to God. Previously, we see in 1 Samuel, he'd set up a statue in his own honor. He'd already been jealous of David's victory. And it seems here, this is part of God's judgment on Saul by handing Saul over to his already hardened heart. Similar to in Exodus, when we see Pharaoh, who we're told hardened his heart, Uh, against God and against Israel. And then we're told later on in, in Exodus that God hardened his heart against Israel. He was handed over to the sin he was already in. And in terms of what exactly this evil or harmful spirit is, well, I think that is hard to know. We do see something kind of similar happens in 1 Kings 22. The Lord sends a deceiving spirit in judgment on an evil king to give false prophecies to his prophets. But it's hard to know exactly what it is that's happening. Some commentators uh, think that it's better to translate the word evil as harmful because it can also mean harmful, that it's a harmful spirit. And then they think that possibly it was an angel of judgment that was sent uh, sent to Saul to cause him grief. But I'm not exactly sure. But what is clear is God has handed Saul over to the hardness of his heart 
And this is God's judgment on Saul for the evil that he was already doing. And in this instance, in this passage, we see Saul's jealousy has moved over to hate. And he throws his spear at David, trying to kill him. And for the rest of Saul's life, he'll be bent on trying to harm or kill David. Now, Saul thinks he has a great plan in the next, the next part of the passage. He thought, uh, he thought if he could just get rid of David, if he could just have him killed, then everything would be fine for him. But as it turns out, trying to harm God's anointed one has the opposite effect. Please read with me verse 17 to 18. Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles for the Lord. For Saul thought to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. So Saul's plan was to get David to marry his daughter simply so that he could have David killed in war fighting the Philistines. He thought, no one will suspect it's me that killed David. Seemed like a good plan. But David doesn't count himself worthy to marry Saul's daughter. So he turns the offer down. Saul's plan fails. But then an opportunity arises again. Saul finds out that his daughter Michal loves David. So he decides to try his crafty plan once again. But this time, he's a bit more sophisticated. He knows what David's response is going to be. And so he's come up with a bit more of a plan on how he can get David killed. Please read with me verse 25. Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hand of the Philistines. The payment price for the bride, it seems strange and a gruesome one. 100 Philistine foreskins. Saul thought that should do it. Uh, David, I'll make David think he's got to earn my daughter's hand. That, that'll get him to take her hand in marriage and to, I'll get the Philistines to hate him. I'll get him not just to kill them, but to cut off their foreskins. That should make them angry. That should get David killed. Saul's plan, it seems genius. And David, he falls right into Saul's trap. Please have a look at me with verse 26 and 27. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. Well, Saul's genius plan, it didn't go so well. David doesn't come back with 100, but 200 Philistine foreskins. Saul's suicide mission for David didn't work out. And can you just imagine 
the look on Saul's face when David came back with 200 foreskins. His plan had backfired miserably. And I do wonder how they were presented to Saul. Now, what do we learn from this? It's certainly not a lesson of how to win your father, uh, future father-in-law over. Saul had a great plan. David fell into his trap. But trying to kill God's anointed is like trying to put out a fire by pouring petrol on it. The more you try, the more powerful he gets. David just becomes more powerful. The people love David even more for what he does. And God accomplishes his plans in helping defeat Israel's enemies even more. It seems in God's marvelous plan, he uses Saul's hate for David in an extraordinary way that makes the people love David even more. And this also reminds me of the anointed one who we follow, our hero, Jesus Christ. So many times, Jesus' enemies had him trapped. While many loved Jesus, he too had many who hated him, who were also trying to kill him, God's anointed. And Jesus, so it seems in parts of the Bible, fell into their trap. They managed to get Jesus arrested. They managed to get Jesus beaten. And they even succeeded in having Jesus killed. It appeared they got him. But the very trap they had for Jesus was the very purpose God had for Jesus to be the saviour of the whole world. Our hero Jesus' death was the greatest victory and salvation of forgiveness of sins for all. In God's marvellous plan, by Jesus' enemies hating Jesus, it made those who love Jesus grow by the million or billion. Because of what Jesus went through at the hands of those who hate him, it makes us love Jesus even more, that he would die in our place for our sins, that he would suffer a painful death to set us free, to restore us in our relationship with God. Jesus' enemies also poured petrol on the fire they were trying to put out. It just seems in God's marvellous plan, he uses people's hate for Jesus in an extraordinary way that makes even more people Love Jesus. And it's no different today. I've been reading about Iran recently, and it's amazing to hear what's been happening over there the last few decades. As you may know, in 1979, there was a revolution in Iran, which got rid of the country's monarchy, which was secular, and replaced it with an Islamic theocracy. Prior to the revolution, there was about 500 known Muslim background believers in Iran, people who had converted from Islam to Christianity. 
when the Islamic theocracy started, all missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in the main languages, Persian and Farsi were banned. Several pastors were killed. Many people were arrested for many years. Many people feared that the small church in Iran wouldn't survive. But about 20 years ago, the number of Christian converts from a Muslim background had grown to about 5,000 to 10,000 people. And this year, the latest data shows there's about 800,000 to a million Christian converts in Iran from Islam to Christianity. Those who hate Jesus, who try to stop the gospel of God's anointed one, are only pouring petrol on the fire. It just seems in God's marvelous plan, he uses people's hate for Jesus in an extraordinary way that make even more people love Jesus. Now, this ought to help fuel our fire for our love of Jesus. He cannot be defeated by those who hate him. His victory is sure even though it may not seem like it at times with political pressures or uh, hard scenarios in your workplace or with your family, Jesus will be victorious. If people hate him, God will use that to bring even more people to love him. We can have confidence in our savior And I'm not saying that it means things are going to be easy. In Iran, even until this very day, it is illegal to share the gospel. Christians are arrested. It's illegal to even convert from Islam to Christianity. But yet God is at work. And those who hate Jesus, God is using to make even more people love him. Isn't our God amazing? And isn't our saviour, our hero who we follow, amazing? It should spur our affections for our great hero, Jesus. So we've seen today, David was God's anointed hero who most of Israel loved for what he had done. Jesus is our hero. And a right response to him is to love Jesus for what he has done for us. Now, not everyone loved David. Saul hated him. But in God's marvelous plan, he used even Saul's hate to make more people love David. And we see the same with Jesus. He had many who hated him. But in God's marvelous plan, he used their hate to make even more people love Jesus. Jesus is our hero. He's our saviour. He has freed us, given us life. He's worthy of our love, joy and affections. Do you love Jesus? Let me close in prayer now. Father in heaven, I just thank you for our great hero, Jesus. 
I ask you'd be at work in our hearts. Help us to understand and know how great he is. Help us to reflect on his wonderful deeds, his great love and sacrifice, and warm our hearts to affections for our great King Jesus. Amen.